Thanks, Paxton, Angie, team. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Hey, uh, not a vocalist, all right? Not my thing, um, but a common song, a melody we know. Um, my favorite worship pastor and yours had a birthday yesterday, so this seems like a fun time to sing him happy birthday and make him really embarrassed uh, and super sad uh, that we're doing this. But, hey, can we sing happy birthday to him? And this is so weird, but I... I can't wait for you to leave this. Uh, see, I was just going to see if you would start it. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Paxton. You're hanging me out to dry. Come on. Happy birthday to you. All right. <laughs> um. Man, thankful. I don't want to say how young he is because it just makes me and the rest of us older. So uh, it was his birthday, and that's enough. Um, hey, uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, as we continue in our foundation series, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, before we do that, uh, we are going to take a moment uh, to, to have, engage in some corporate prayer together. Last week, uh, we had the opportunity to walk through a guided prayer uh, and really take a, a chance to, to really pray for um, the people of Ukraine and the suffering that's happening there. Um, one of the most incredible things about God's church is the connection uh, across, uh, across all of not just time and space, but also the opportunity in this moment, in this present age, to be connected to people in different countries, in different regions, in different places, in really tangible ways. Uh, so one of the things that, that has been a part of Double Oak Community Church for a long time, specifically at our Mount Laurel campus, is this deep relationship with the Richard Wormbrand Christian School, which is in Romania, in this little town called Lassi. Uh, and that Christian school and the camp that, w- that we send a team almost every summer over there, they are housing a number of Ukrainian refugees. Uh, and this morning, we've got the names of 14, I think, different families um, that we're going to take the opportunity to pray for. Uh, so in this moment, here's what this looks like. Um, I want you to take one of these names that you surely won't be able to pronounce, and I won't either, and that's okay. Um, but they're up there, and they're named uh, because we need to recognize that these are real people. These are people created in the image of God who have experienced trauma and suffering. And we get the beautiful opportunity this morning to come alongside these people and pray for them. Not the least we can do, but the most. To call upon the God of the universe to reach into the lives of these people and meet them where they are. Where they are. Um, so look, you might want to pick uh, somebody that, that has a family that kind of resembles yours. Uh, maybe you can identify in that way, or you might just want to pick uh, one of these names, but I want you to do that right now in this moment. Just look at one of those, um, one of those sets of names, uh, and we're going to take a moment and just pray um, for these individual folks. Uh, so do that now, uh, and if you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, These people are created in your image. They have joy and have experienced that in so many contexts. And right now they're experiencing pain in so many ways. Um, God, but through, uh, through Christy and the team there in Lassie, um, as they continue to minister to these people, I just pray that you would be with them. Um, Father, specifically, um, that you would be with the Bielosovs. Lubinskis, the Okashore Lazarevs, the Stavisuks, the 
Rachinkas, Ornolitskayas, the Gusars, the Kotsilkis, Trokas, Palatovs. Father, that these people, um, God, that you've known, created in your image, known for the foundation of the world, God, that you would give them hope and life and joy. Um, and God, in the midst of, of physical pain and trauma, emotional pain and trauma, God, would you minister to them by your spirit, by your very spirit, giving them peace beyond understanding um, and the pain of this world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you, you can find these names uh, listed just like this and continual updates at doubleoakcc.org forward slash Ukraine. If you go there, you can see these names. You might want to continue uh, to pray for these folks a, a, as a family or, or with friends or in community group or something like that. Uh, or maybe even just your quiet time in the morning or afternoon or evening, whenever you do that and spend that time with the Lord. I think it's a good opportunity uh, to tangibly to connect to what's going on over there. And there's ways you can give as well, uh, but we at least can pray for these people specifically and ask the Lord to minister to them. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 9 through 12 today. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. We're in this series called Foundation. So if, if you're new joining us, we've really been talking about over the course of the last seven weeks uh, what it really means for us to understand who we are. Like, what, what is our true foundation? What's the bedrock of, of, of who we are? What is that indelible fingerprint that describes us? And we mean that in a couple of ways. One, truly, in a general sense, as believers in Christ, who we are in Christ, but also, and very particularly, to our context in this church, to Double Up Community Church Chelsea, who are we? What, what is our foundation? What is the thing that is going to not just distinguish us or set us apart from other churches? That in no way, shape, or form is the point. But instead, what is going to help people realize who, who we really are? What's at the core of us? And this is it. We want to be gospel people. We want to be people who are foundationally grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the gospel is everything to us, and that that gospel of Jesus permeates this place so much that there is actually this thing that begins to happen, this reflection, this culture that demonstrates what we call the gospel. And the gospel, as presented to us in the New Testament text and all of the scriptures, all building to this one thing, this one moment where we understand, we come to the place where there is this proclamation, this good news, that all that has been broken will be restored. That everything will be made new because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news is what gospel means. The gospel is that Jesus has died, that he's risen, and that he'll come again. This is incredible news that changes and transforms all of us, all of humanity, all of life through the one that it was created by. He redeems everything. And so we want to be people that, that experience that to the fullness. And so here's how we would describe that. We want to be people that believe in the gospel, believe in the gospel for salvation, Believe in the gospel every day that God is sanctifying us and restoring us and making us new through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We want to be people that live in the reality of the gospel also. That means that we have now, we have a relationship with God through Christ and dwell by the Holy Spirit and we're connected to God and now we're connected to each other. We're, we're family. 
We're really children of God and connected to one another. And then the last week, and what we've been walking into for these last couple weeks, is the reality that we want to believe in the gospel. We want to live in the reality, the implications of gospel life. And we also want to live it out. We want to put on display, we want to demonstrate the very love of God that has changed us. We want to demonstrate what the gospel has done in us to those that are outside us. And last week we talked about those that are outside us, but in here. What it looks like to live out the gospel in service. This week, we're really talking about what it looks like to live out the gospel to outsiders. To people who exist beyond us. And quite frankly, people who are likely those who do not believe in Jesus and are not a part of the faith. What does that look like? I grew up in a world, so I, like, I grew up in church. And I grew up in a world where I think I saw people do big things for God. Do you know anybody like that who you've seen that, that has done that or, or in some ways has maybe just been this really incredible, captivating, charismatic, amazing personality with these incredible gifts that allowed them to do these big, big things? I think for, for a large portion of my young Christian life, I thought that that was what it meant to be a faithful Christian, was to go do these big things for God. But as I grew in my faith, I also wrestled with the fact that there's a lot of us, and maybe we're not all supposed to be doing these big things, or maybe everything isn't supposed to look like the big thing to the point where I got to the place where I was like, wait a minute, what if the little things are big things? What if anything done by the guidance of walking in, leaning on the Holy Spirit that we just sang about? What if doing anything for the Lord is a big thing? I think we live in a world that says, like, if, if you don't influence, if you don't do big stuff, you're not important. And quite frankly, you might even be looking at yourself as a failure. What does it mean to live out the gospel? Because I would say that you're a theologian. You think about God. I would say that you're an evangelist. You have a story of how Christ has saved you, and you're called to share that. We know those things, but how do we do that? We're going to read this passage today, and it's going to bring you deep comfort. Not, not, it had nothing to do with me, I promise, but it's going to bring you deep, deep comfort. Because you're going to understand we tell the world about who Jesus is through the quiet life. That's really how it looks. And quite frankly, that's how God designed it. For you and me to be faithful people, loving God, loving our neighbor, Believing in, believing in the gospel, living in the gospel, and revealing, demonstrating, living out this gospel to the world. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. This is what it says. Paul writes, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, 
You have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. All right, here's the backstory. Um, Paul's writing to this church, Thessalonica. It, the, the background of this, if you go to Acts 17, you might want to in your quiet time this week or, or look toward this passage. Acts chapter 17, you're going to get a picture of this church. It's this, this place. It's, it's a very, very early church. Paul and Silas plant. They have to leave uh, because of persecution. But they plant this church in this place, in this area of Macedonia that is thriving and is growing. So this letter that is written to them, this, this letter of 1 Thessalonians is written to them as an as a, as a encouragement for all the good that's happening. Because Timothy has reported back to Paul and said, hey, this, this, this young group of believers in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pain, they're thriving they're really, really growing as a church. So he writes, and he does two very specific things. The, the, the work of 1 Thessalonians, the book, is really broken up. In the first three chapters, he's, he's affirming and recognizing how they came to Christ, how they've turned away from idols and from living in a polytheistic, uh, many-God, serving, worshiping, many-God-type world, being just subject to Caesar in a Roman way, like in a, in a societal citizenship way, saying, hey, this is who we're subject to, turning from, from giving those things lordship of their life to Jesus Christ, to truly believing the gospel. And the, in these first three chapters, he tells them that story, reminds them of what all that God has done, And gives them encouragement for all the incredible things that they're doing. Even specifically talking about how Paul writes and says how he's been deeply loved by these people. Incredibly loved. He's he's just doling out compliments, telling them they're doing incredible things. They're being obedient. They're being faithful. This is all happening in chapters 1 through 3. And then 4 and 5, he gives them some very specific directives. He gives them some challenges. And says, hey, these are areas in which you actually demonstrate this gospel that you believe and you live in. This is how you can show the world who we are. And show people what it means to to experience the life that comes with believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And having a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. So he, he tells them all this, and in the midst of it, he writes to them specifically surrounding the fact that they're seeing several folks around them die, folks that are passing away that are part of this community, folks that have been martyred. Um, and he writes to them specifically about the coming of Jesus. That part's really important, even within the context of this passage, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but here's the first thing he says. Look at verse 9, 9 and 10. He says, concerning brotherly love... You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So a couple of things are happening here. Um, One, he's saying that these brothers, that these sisters, that these people of faith very clearly love one another. They're already demonstrating the life of the gospel is flowing out of them toward one another. This is happening abundantly, so much so that he says, you have no need to be taught. 
Now, this is really, really incredible language, and, and John will use this language too, so it's not just Pauline language. We remember from 1 John, he would use this language as well. But the idea is that they, in many ways, have a firm, not just conceptual, but heart grasp on what it means to love one another. But he goes a step further and qualifies the instructor, the teacher, the one who gave them the ability to love in that way. And this is helpful for us because we see that this is not just something that practice made perfect. Instead, that the way that they love is because they've been what? Taught by God. It's God who has done this. And so specifically, Paul is right and he's saying it's the indwelling spirit of God that's within you. We talked two weeks ago, talked about put, it, put on the new self, right? Look at Colossians 3, the idea of putting on the new self. This is availing oneself to the Spirit, trusting in the Holy Spirit, resting in what God has done that gives them the ability to actually love one another. I do this thing where I might encounter a person occasionally that's it's hard to love them. All right? I don't know if you share in that at all. Have you ever had an experience with anybody like that in your life? One of the things um, that I think I just like my gut go to is just like I got to try harder. I got to do more. Well, actually, my gut go to is like they're wrong and terrible and they should be better. <laughs> um, that's, 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 that's the first thing. Um, some of you are there with me. Um, but look, but ultimately I think I, I got to try harder. I got to do more. I got to, I got to make a more concerted effort. I've got to do better. And what Paul's saying is the way that you've loved one another effectively is because you haven't sought to try harder to do better. You've actually availed yourself. You've given yourself over to the spirit of God in such a way that he's taught you how to love. So some really helpful things. Paul's just saying, look, look, you love people really, really well. But he won't say this to them without them understanding that they continually need to do this and that it's God who has taught them. That even in their best moments of faithfulness, they're not responsible for this. It's not their hard work or their effort or their energy that makes them love others more. No, it's truly the very grace of God manifested to them and through them by the Holy Spirit. And he says this. He says, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. This is the hallmark of who they are. And he encourages them not to rest on their laurels, not to give up, not to quit loving people. And he's going to talk in a moment about what the things that they're really struggling with, perhaps, and the things that they're not doing well. But we just have this tendency, I think, as, as people and, quite frankly, as believers to say, hey, that's a checkbox. I did that one. Right? I, I, I got that part. I know how to love people well. Paul says, no, no, no. This is something we do more and more and more because it's going to not just influence others in the church, other believers. It's also going to impact the world. And this is what he says. In addition to this love, he really highlights in a clausal way these few things. The first one is this, and to aspire to live quietly. So as you love one another, make it your goal, make it your ambition. This is your aspiration. This is the thing that you're striving for. It's to live quietly. What does that mean? 
Because I have five children in my house, so we're failing, obviously, right now. There is no, there is no quietly. It just never happens. That might be your home, too. Or your home might be this place of deep rest and solace where there's just not tons of noise. And if afterwards, I'd like your address. If you could let me know what that is, I'd love to come visit you. Um, but look, that might, that might be the place where you are. But this is not a sonic suggestion. This is not about noise. What Paul is talking about is how to live in such a way that you're quiet internally. And he does this by saying the strangest thing is this oxymoron where he says, make it your ambition, essentially, to have no ambition. So the thing that you should strive for is to stop striving. That's a strange thing. Not just in, in Paul's world, not in just times of antiquity, but ours as well. Because everything in the world tells us that we should have influence. That we should influence people. That there, we should have a platform. That we should have a place. And we don't really even need the world to tell us that because we want to do that ourselves on some level. We want to create an opportunity for people to love us and show us affection and show us that we matter. We want to do something big because more than that, we want to be something that's recognized as big and important. Something that matters. But this is what Paul says. He says, make it your ambition to have no ambition. What does that look like for you and me? He's contrasting the ambition to be something, to create, to fashion identity for oneself with the idea that these believers already have identity in Jesus Christ. That they don't need to be something. And look, I I think for a number of us, we feel external pressures from the world and internal pressures to be something. For the males in the room, I I, I think I could quite frankly say that, that we feel like we don't, we haven't made enough, we haven't earned enough, we don't have enough, we're not strong enough. All of these different things, right? And we talk to one another. And it's from, you know, we, we go to these places where sometimes we have a conversation and we're disappointed that our golf handicap is way worse than the other guys. And if that's you, come talk to me because I haven't played in forever and I'll make you feel better. Or we talk to one another about investments or our business or how this is going. And we, we always are looking and comparing and saying, am I doing enough? What should I be? I want to have more. And then I think, like, quite frankly, for you ladies, it's just different stuff. Like, I would tell you, I would tell you my sweet wife, like, spends time worried, like, am I a good mom? Am I a good mom? Am I, am I teaching our children well? And I can look from the outside and affirm all these things. But inside, she's, she's really struggling. She's really challenged by the place that she's in often. Why, why do these things happen? Why are we wrestling with all of this stuff, both external and internal? 
is quite often was we failed to make it our ambition to have no ambition. How do we get to that place? How do you get to a place where you're so driven to not drive? This just sounds like silly talk, right? But ultimately, Paul is driving these believers to this deep gospel truth in this one phrase because he's saying, you don't have to be anything because Christ has been everything for you. Everything. And that's what the gospel is. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, every doubt, every fear, every insecurity, every broken thing that you have or you are has been restored and you have fullness in him. That's real. That's real. And here's the thing. I'm going to say it to you, and I hope by God's spirit he's impressing this upon your heart in this moment and that you'll remember it because later you're going to forget it. Because later you're going to get on the internet, which we all will do today at some point, and we'll see that somebody's vacation looks better than ours. And that somebody's family takes much more photogenic pictures than ours does. And at this point, like, we don't own anything. This morning, like, I have a stain right here. I'm like, everything has a stain in my whole life. <laughs> everything has a stain on it. It's okay. Because the stain of sin in my life has been blotted out. And I've been redeemed. What Paul is describing to this church is he's saying, look, you want to help your brothers and sisters experience love? You want to help people outside experience love? You need to know for yourself that you have freedom. And this is the freedom of the Christian. That God has first loved us. As a result, we've had the opportunity to love him, to, to seek to obey the greatest commandment, to love him with our heart, soul, and our mind, and our strength. And then that frees us up to this next thing, which is loving my neighbor as myself. But I can't get to that place. I can't evangelize. I can't live out the gospel with outsiders unless I realize that the gospel has redeemed me on the inside. And that I don't have to do these big things for God. In the way that I might have constructed that idea. Or I might have taken the idea of influence and put it into a Christian worldview or whatever. I don't have to do all of these things. Why am I free from that? Because God has done everything in Christ. And I'm free now to just go love others. I don't have to make a name for myself. I don't have to have ambition to be something. And then he drives on and he says this that, that really kind of comes behind it. He says, to mind your own affairs. So the goal to live out the gospel, as Paul writes to this church at Thessalonica, what he says is live quietly, have ambition to not be ambitious because of all that Christ has done for you. And to mind your own affairs. So one of the ways that I think we deeply struggle and we seek to compensate with the fact that we have insecurities and we wrestle with the reality that, that we have ambition, that we want to be something, that we want to be somebody. And ultimately that all boils down to identity. I want to be known and I want to be loved. And I find all of that in the gospel. But when I forget it, one of the tendencies I have is to be a busybody and to look into the lives of others because I have this innate desire to fix the brokenness within me, but I don't know how to fix me, so you know what? I think I know how to fix them, though. 
Anybody ever done this, felt this, lived this? I do believe that we're naturally, we have, we have a propensity to be drawn toward fixing the things about others. Jesus believed this too. He would do that whole log speck thing, right? Like, hey, you're trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye and there's a log in yours, right? We have this propensity to try to fix others, to meddle with others. And Paul says, this is not where you get comfort from. The comfort from, the recognition of all of these things that you are, that you're doing well, you're loving one another. How are you doing that? Because God has first loved you. He's redeemed you. He's taken you out of this brokenness, out of this culture, out of this this pain that would take you to the place where you'd say, I'll stop worshiping all these other gods that I've been influenced and pressured to worship. I'll stop yielding to Caesar, and I'll yield to this, this new king, Jesus, who redeems everything so much so that I'll put my life on the line. I'll put the life of my family on the line. This deep, deep transformation has happened in you. Don't forget this and go try to make something of yourself. Because Christ has made more of you than you can even imagine. And it's all happened in him. So Paul's urge is do not be concerned with others. Don't don't let that be the place you draw your comfort from. And then if that happens, if you come to the place where you're not meddling in other people's lives, now you have the opportunity not to demonize them, not to see them as someone who is wrong, but actually to see someone who's in need. And we're going to see that down in verse 12. Look to the last part of verse 11. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, this is really, really incredible because I think, I think there's, there's, some deep, um, there's some deep theological beauty here. There's some historical things that are going to help us frame it. And there's incredible comfort personally for you and me and the work that you and I do, which often feels mundane. Paul tells these believers to work with their hands. Here's the thing. Manual labor in Paul's day was incredibly degrading. This was a degrading form of work. So this is not looked upon as incredible stuff that's happening, right? Like, this is beneath people. The Greco-Roman world looked at those who did this. Even if they were not slaves, they regarded them in that way because they said this is beneath us. Why were they doing that? Why did they act that way? Because they wanted to be somebody. They wanted to be something. They missed the identity, the life that they could have in Jesus. That was mundane work that was despised by them. There's this famous Greek writer, Plutarch, um, and he says this. He says, while we delight in the work, we despise the workman. So I love everything that benefits me from this, but I despise the person who does it. He talks about people who give them and make perfumes and dyes. He says this, For instance, in the case of perfumes and dyes, we take a delight in them, but those who make them we regard as illiberal and vulgar folk. So for the Greeks, just regular work was degrading. And this is the kind of work that believers, that, that those who trusted Jesus in Thessalonica, this is the kind of work they would be doing. 
work that was viewed as degrading. The Jews, on the other hand, upheld the dignity of all forms of labor. And even those in wealthy families, their kids would have to get jobs. Apparently, like, this is a different world. Not a lot of Jewish trust funds, all right? This is, this, I mean, I'm serious. This is, it, it was vastly different in which they all, all the people in those families had to get jobs. So for the Greeks, they look at jobs like this as degrading. People with a Jewish background look at these jobs as obligatory. You got to do it. You have to do it. But for the Christian, this job is not degrading. And it's not just obligatory. There's something beyond it. These jobs were beautiful. These jobs were beautiful. Why? Because it was a way to demonstrate your love for the Lord. And quietly, you humbly went and worked. And you received a wage. And you took care of your family. And you were able to meet the needs of others. It's simple. Simple, humble work where one doesn't make much of oneself, but instead, the whole point of work is to give to others. The whole point of working is to provide for our families, to care for one another, to, to give, to live charitable lives where we live out the gospel by giving to people in need. Paul did this. He worked as a tent maker. We might say, well, why, why is Paul doing that? This makes no sense that he would spend his time making tents instead of going and preaching the gospel to some more people. Why in the world would he do that practical thing? Because in these little things, these mundane things, the gospel is demonstrated. Here's how. Look at the result of all of these things that Paul describes in verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. Now, some translations will say behave properly, but here, here's the reality. That, that word walk, it, it's peripateo. It means ultimately not just to, to walk and take steps towards something, but to live. It describes the very action of life. So what Paul is saying is that the, the way that you live out the gospel, the way that you live before outsiders is this. All of these things, Zealous, ambitious to not have ambition for oneself and trust in the gospel. To, to stay concerned with the affairs of oneself and not meddle in the lives of others and not draw comfort from whatever is wrong with someone else or to draw comfort from what is right with them and some sort of societal status that they could give me to lift me up. No, it's reflected in the beauty of working with our hands in humble ways and caring for and providing for others. Because you know what we're doing in that moment? We're emulating the God who created us. We're living in such a way where we provide provision. And it's not from us. It's ultimately from the Lord. But we get to participate in that beauty. All of those things do this thing. So that you can live out the gospel. That you can live before outsiders. Paul is not saying, go and learn exactly how to articulate what the gospel is in some sort of like eight-week study 
And then you get together with those folks and you go knock on every door in the neighborhood and you tell everybody about Jesus because he might be coming back tomorrow. And if we don't, we're terrified that he's going to be mad at us. I'm serious. Did nobody else, did nobody else live this? Nobody else felt this? That, that the goal of life in living out the gospel is to go tell people the gospel? We're going to do that. Absolutely, we're going to do that. It's going to be a real struggle for them to actually be what Jesus called us to help them be, which is a disciple. If we don't know them, if we don't have a relationship with them. Paul is saying that all these little things of life that are considered to be mundane, like living quietly, caring about people in such a way that that you, you kind of stick to yourself, Working humbly? He's saying that these things are what communicates the beauty of who Jesus is to those who are outside. Because this is what outsiders means. It does not mean specifically, oh, these people, like, they don't go to church. That's not what outsiders means. This is what it, it clearly means in the Greek. It means those that are without. And what they're without is Jesus. Not without an affiliation to a club, not without an affiliation or, or some sort of membership within the context of church, or they're like, oh, they're not on a roll somewhere. No, no, no. These, these are people who do not know the beauty, the redemptive life, communion with God through Christ the Son by the Holy Spirit. These are people that don't know Jesus. And Paul is saying, this is... This is in so many ways, insane to think that it, like, can this really be the way that I minister the gospel to people, the way that I care about others is by living quietly? It's by being focused on what God's doing in me, in my heart, in my life, and by working that like my job when I sit at the computer or when I teach or when I code or when I do these things, are you telling me that that's a good endeavor? That that's worthy work? Absolutely. That's what the scriptures say. And in doing that, you're gaining the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ, this gospel, with outsiders. I want to like be just, just try to be as clear as I can possibly be. There may be people in this room, and God calls you to be a missionary. God calls you to go to a very specific place at a specific time and minister his gospel in a, in a powerful and strange way. That's likely not going to be most of us. And that's okay. That's okay. Because this is the recipe, this is the secret sauce, this is the formula, this is the thing for loving others, for living out the gospel. It's this. It's your children being your disciples. It's your spouse being your accountability partner. It's real communication with friends. It's building rich community together. And us going out to all of our little places and working humbly 
in such a way where we don't have to make much of ourselves and the world that's dying to be something looks at us and says, how are you this content? How are you okay with just being this? And you get to share this story about how you've been loved. And when you were broken, dead in sin, it was then Christ died for you. And gave you his life so that you might have his. This is incredible stuff. It ought to give us comfort and freedom to know I can be obedient and rest in what the gospel is, what Jesus has done for me. I can wake up tomorrow and spend time with the God who loves me by opening the scriptures, by seeking him in prayer. I can go to work. I can go live my life. And not feel this like shame or burden that I'm not doing enough for God. This is the gospel. You don't do anything for him. He did everything for you and me. When we keep that before us, we get to go live these beautiful lives where work is not degrading. And like, well, I have an entry-level job. Or maybe my job's not important. Or the world doesn't regard my job as important. It's not degrading. And in some ways, it might be obligatory. you got to do it. But it's so much more. It's beautiful. Because it's an opportunity for you to love others. To build relationships with others. To exist in a world where you can care about others. And you can actually live out the gospel. That ought to bring us deep comfort. And deep hope. And to give us confidence that we can bloom where we're planted. And quit looking for the next big thing. There is no next big thing. There's one big thing. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, you've given us this, this beautiful family in you, this, this church, uh, this congregation. God, we're seated here. Um, with brothers and sisters, people we dearly love. God, would you build the quiet life into us? The rhythms of keeping the gospel before us, the recognition that we're free to love our neighbor, to champion our neighbor, to care for our neighbor, because we don't have to make much of ourselves because you've given us more than we could ever imagine in Jesus. And God, I just pray that you would even transform us and our church through this. That we could be a congregation that is is faithfully grounded in you. And God, that Sundays and, and Wednesdays and our time together in the community that we build here would not be a show. It would not be an event. It would not be a thing that we come to. Instead, it'd be a family where we get to live quiet lives together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And as the world sees this, Father, 
they're attracted they're drawn and say what is this contentment what is this life and then father we get to share the story we get to tell them that every blessing that has come to us has come from you that all the riches we have are not earthly but they're in Christ Jesus dwell by a spirit that gives us comfort God that we're one with you would you let that be our story would you let that be how we live out the gospel in this community in Jesus name